global law and global business go hand in hand, but never seem to keep pace with each other. The importance on the global stage of developing and developed nations waxes and wanes, while consumption and interconnectedness steadily increase. All the while, laws and regulations change incessantly, requiring businesses to stay nimble. But how do we make sense of it all? Welcome to Global Law and Business, hosted by Harris Brickens International Business Attorneys. I'm Fred Rockefort. And I'm Jonathan Bench. Every week, we take a targeted look at legal and economic developments in locales around the world as we try to decipher global trends in law and business with the help of international experts. We cover continents, countries, regimes, governance, finance, legal developments, and whatever is trending on Twitter. We cover the important, the seemingly unimportant, the relatively simple, and the complex. Today we're joined by Jack Reisider, a veteran to the information security world. He gained his professional knowledge of security by working in a security operations center for a Fortune 500 company, a place where threats are detected and stopped. During that time, he was exposed to hundreds of clients' networks, ranging from schools to government to banks to commercial organizations. In 2017, Jack started the podcast Darknet Diaries. The podcast amassed more than 18 million downloads in 2021, more than doubling 2020's numbers. Darknet Diaries has been featured in the New York Times, The Guardian, and Vulture. Jack, welcome to Harris Brickens Global Law and Business. Well, thanks for having me. Nice to be here. We're very excited. I was joking with you before we started uh, about personal information. Um, so tell us a little more about your background. Nothing you don't want to share, but we'd love to hear more about how you developed your skills and why did you decide to jump into the media space? I think it comes back. If I want to look back, I'm going to say my grandma bought a computer for me, well, for the family when I was like, uh, I don't know, 10. And, uh, with that exposure at home, I think is really what got me interested in tech. You know, if, if it would have only been in not, you know, if I didn't have a computer until I got to high school or college or something, um, I probably wouldn't have had nearly half as much, you know, interest or skills at it. So just getting that early age, uh, computer to be able to use it and, and have access to it, I think is really what, what got me started in all this. You know, you learn to type, you learn to play games on it, you learn all these things and, it, there there was never ending passion for it ever since then. I've always been fascinated with it. So I went to university, got a degree in computer engineering, and um, went off to become a, a network engineer. Um, I wasn't really sure about what path I wanted to take, but then the, a, a, a position opened for a security engineer. And when I switched to that, it was perfect for me because um, in, in the university, they teach you one one t topic on every piece of tech, right? They don't really go in depth on any tech. They just say, here's one thing on this language, one thing on operating system, one course on this. And so it was all those things actually coming together to do security. So it became my passion. I was like, yes, all the all the little bits of information I've learned in, in all my life is now being used and it feels fantastic. So it was just right at home. Um, you know, in this time, I was listening to podcasts, This American Life and Radio Lab, and this kind of thing. And they were so fascinating to me to be able to just sit in the car, get to where you're going, and you don't want to turn the car off because you still love this, uh, this show you're listening to. And so there's something gripping about that. And at the same time, I was getting into security and hearing how there's some really high drama hacker stories out there, you know, people going to prison for life. There are people um, getting killed 
uh, you know, from online disputes and stuff. So um, the, where's the podcast that's covering these high drama cybersecurity stories? And of course, there's nation states hacking each other. I mean, it's crazy. And there wasn't one. So I was like, I do I have to make this? I don't really feel like I don't know anything about making <laughs> this stuff. But uh, the idea stayed in my head for about six months. And then I finally said, OK, well, I really want this to happen. So maybe I have to make it myself. And I got a book and read up how to uh, tell stories and do kind of journalism was something I had to learn, too. And, yep, that's how I got started with the podcast. And it's I've been able to quit my job and do it full time. And it's kind of changed my life. I got to say, I'm a huge fan. It, the episodes I've listened to. So my son took, I went to a cybersecurity camp this summer. And while he was there at the university campus, the, uh, the people who were running it put him onto the podcast. I think they listened to a, uh, one or two episodes. And so he came home and told me about it. And I said, that sounds fascinating. I've got to check this out. So we started listening to it and it, it's been fun. It's like you, you said, I find it very, uh, you know, very gripping. It's it, it kind of satiates my need for the storytelling side of this, right? One thing I love about what we do on this podcast is we get into the details of people's lives, and I love the background. And I respect someone like you who says, "Hands off my personal details." But most people, including me, are more than happy to share our life stories uh, to the world, right? We don't we don't work in the same space you do, and some of some of it is our currency, right? And so I appreciate what you've done with the podcast to make it really, and, and obviously I'm not the only one, right? I mean, your, your downloads speak for it, but that's fascinating. Yeah. Maybe I should give a, a, just a description of what the show is. So I'm kind of a slow news junkie and, and I don't really want the latest news because that's kind of a lot of hearsay. I like to wait until the story is complete where we have, you know, the uh, final verdict and the sentencing for for this, you know, uh, attacker. And so if we know that, then we can go back and see the whole story, right? I mean, especially if there's a sentencing um, where the person pleaded not guilty because now we have a court. And in court, we have, uh, you know, court records and we can look up how did the FBI catch this person? What evidence did they have on him? What were the victim's testimonies? All these kind of things that you can look through. And from there, you can just keep going backwards and say, okay, well, what was the reason why this person did this? And where, what is their background? And where are they from? And you could just keep looking up. So now you have this soup to nuts story, the entire thing of who this person was who did this attack all the way up till them getting, uh, you know, all the damage they've done, the arrest that happened and the sentencing. And that to me is how to properly tell a good news story, right? It's the whole picture. And that just wasn't there in the space. And that's why I started making that. Give me the entire um, story of, uh, uh, you know, a cybersecurity story. Jack, I want to talk a little bit more about the podcast and the kinds of stories that you, you cover. Perhaps one good way of doing this is by focusing on on one of your your podcasts or one of your episodes and 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 how how that story crossed your your path how how it came in, how how it showed up on your on your radar what the process was like in terms of, of reaching out to to your guest um i greatly enjoyed the episode where you described an incident that took place with the the lottery uh, in in Puerto Rico, I I grew up in Puerto Rico, so so that definitely caught my attention. And frankly, uh, I, I had not heard at all about that that incident. And, and later, uh, thanks thanks to your podcast, I saw that there there had been uh, indictments and 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 ultimately uh, sentences ha handed down. So perhaps again, using that episode as a as a as a model how, or, or as an example, how do you 
uh, source your 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 guests and and your your stories. Yeah, there's a few tactics, you know, there's not one, but there's many. And, um, you know, at the beginning, nobody knew who I was. So I was going around and tapping on a lot of shoulders, people who I knew from the space, people who have prominent blogs or whatever. And I'd go to a lot of conferences and I'd listen to people and I'd say, oh, wow, that was a great story. You already told it on stage. Can you come on my podcast and tell it? So that's how I kind of got started, um, seeing news reports and just knowing what the big stories are and then trying to find who were the researchers that were doing these, you know, discovering these threats or something. You know, anybody that has their name tied to this, uh, maybe they'd be able to talk. And so I, I went from there. But yeah, over time, I became um, known for um, just being being the one who tells these stories and you go to them. So it's been probably a handful of people, maybe five or six episodes now where um, somebody comes to me and says, I, I have this story. And of course, I don't trust them. And so I'm like, well, what, what do you have to prove it? And um, sometimes they show me their criminal record or their indictments or something. And I'm like, wow, that's you. OK, uh, let's let's go. Um, and then, uh, yeah, in that case, uh, the, that person brought that story to me and I was able to validate that by calling Puerto Rico and asking around and, and talking to other people who know him, um, the person who gave me the story and having them listen to this and, and seeing, um, you know, what they, what they thought of it and stuff like that. So, uh, yeah, I mean, that story is a wild one and I, and I think it was previously unreported and he kept it close to his chest for so long. And that's kind of one of the things I like to do too, is find these, um, people get this kind of access and then show the world this, this kind of stuff, because me going to these hacker conferences, I hear these stories all the time and, and everyone goes to the hacker conferences, hears these stories and they're ridiculous stories and they're wild. And I'm trying to capture those and, and show the world this stuff because it's, it's very common. It's just crazy. Jack, you bring up a very interesting point, how these conferences are a place where, where stories get shared. I've, 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 I've had um, similar experiences in, in, in other contexts, perhaps. But, but this um, reminds me of something you mentioned uh, regarding the, how loath sometimes companies and their leadership are to reveal cybersecurity incidents. Um, and there's probably good, good reasons for that. Um, but I, I imagine that that these conferences, these events are are critical, at least to to get a, a real sense for what's happening out there. Even if if ultimately there's there's a a certain um, lack of, of transparency. But perhaps you could you could talk a little bit more uh, about this. What, what what might be some ways in which information can could could be could be shared in a in a more useful way in a more wider way, and, and what perhaps are, are, are some of the, some of the reasons, maybe, maybe go, going back to, to that original uh, question, you know, wh why, why exactly are companies reluctant to share some of the information? Again, some of it might be intuitive, but I'd love to hear your, your perspective on, on, on that. Yeah, I think it, um, you know, it weakens uh, trust with the customers. If you say that we're, we have some insecure applications or whatever, um, so they, they're worried about that. They're worried about sh shareholders um, losing faith in the company and stuff. And um, they, they don't want to look, you know, like they did something bad. So they're, there's always trying to hide in, in Europe. Uh, oftentimes, uh, if I don't know which kind of companies it is, but some of them are required to disclose breaches publicly. Um, I think tele telecom companies are one of them, at least to, to, to disclose it to the government. And um, you know, certain watchdog groups and stuff just to keep them honest. But um, in the in the U.S., you don't have to. So 
Um, you can you can get hit and keep it quiet, and there's no law against it. Um, but um, I think something that helps is is sharing your your story because when we go to these conferences, these hacking conferences or security conferences, we're all looking to see who has a similar situation than us and how are they f figuring out the problems that we have. And um, if nobody's talking, then you know it's hard to make those connections. But if somebody's like, okay, here was the issue that we we solved, and here's how we solved it, and stuff like that, it really helps other people try to solve their problems. And it it, it all it all, it seems to make you look good, at least at the security conference that um, you're sharing this kind of thing. So I do uh, appreciate people sharing their stories, and some people don't like sharing it publicly. So there's these things called ISACs which is information security exchanges where you have kind of a small group. So like, let's say you're a, a, a bank and you want to share your threats that you're getting hit with. You can get in an ISAC with other banks and say, here's some of the IPs that are targeting us and some of the attackers we're seeing in the malware. And those other banks might appreciate that. And then they'll share what they're getting, right? So it's kind of a small um, community. And that's ISAC is ISAC. And so, uh, yeah, there's these things to join and, um, share, sharing is uh, helpful to kind of get a sense of what other people are, are experiencing and, and how to help solve your problems that are the same as theirs. Now this leads into a great topic that I think about quite a bit, which is with the proliferation of electronic devices everywhere. You know, when we were growing up, we I think I got we got our first computer mid '80s, so maybe '85. And of course, we didn't get connected to the internet until early 90s. And, and then I was tying up my parents' only phone line. And so we've had uh, big changes in our lifetimes. Do you think that the world is getting more or less safe with proliferation of the electronic devices and, uh, you know, our, our security measures? Are, are they keeping up? Um, is privacy now just totally relative? There is no absolute privacy unless you just don't have a digital footprint. Well, I think uh, I think there is an arms race going on. So the more secure something is, the more the attackers are trying to figure out a way around it. So it's just it's a constant battle, and there will always be that battle because you've got nation states that need you know they've got mission critical missions, whatever uh, that they need to get into their target, you know whatever, and get access. And so they're going to be paying perhaps millions of dollars to get into certain things and you know nothing is a barrier they have the the people the time the money to do what they need to do and and some nations even come over and blackmail or uh, you know bribe or get someone in that organization to flip and be on their side and now you've got an insider in there so um i mean they, they've gone to extreme lengths to to get what they need to do so um you know, when you're going against someone like that, you might not have a defense because it's just so, um, so they have so many resources. But um, you can still make it difficult for them by doing best practices and following the right rules on how to secure things. I think um, I, I go I go up and down on whether or not I think it's improving or getting worse. I think when you have you know, um, secure point end to end encryption applications like signal making all sorts of traction, um, then things are getting better. But then when you have, um, major breaches where, you know, millions of people get their data stolen, then things are getting worse. And so it's, um, it's difficult to, to see exactly if things are getting better or worse. Every day, the technology makes it so that we can be more secure, but then every day more stuff just shows up on the internet that isn't secure. 
and it makes things so it's almost like you know filling filling a bathtub with the with the drain open it's coming out the bottom but it's also filling up at the same time so it's not quite going up or down right it's it's tricky to to gauge I'm curious if you're looking at the upcoming crop you know I think people are people are getting more and more technologically savvy do you think that we have let's take the US as an example or you can look at the whole world if you want to do you feel like that we have enough information security experts who are building apps the right way, building programs the right way to uh, to protect. Do, do, is that tide rising as fast as the the other side of the coin with people who are looking to manipulate data and to cause data breaches and, and gain that way? Well, I I have a feeling that their security team is sometimes inadequate. Right, you could all, you could get some more people, but what I, what I keep saying is like it's not the leadership that has the right security mindset right they they think that they can just hire down and get the uh get the team in to fix these problems but it really should start at the top where where if the ceo or whatever is has a very strong security mindset and is preaching that down the line saying okay we're going to get a very you know security oriented cto and, and and ciso in here and all these kind of things um, then you've you're not you're not pushing that boulder up the hill when you're just a security engineer trying to tell the CEO like look our risk posture is really bad when you when you tweet about your political opinions right and, or whatever the case is um, you know it, they're just not getting it and so um, it, it, you can't push that boulder up the hill when it comes to security it can only go down the hill and so if the C, if it starts at the top and that there's a strong like the, if the CEO is skipping out on the security uh, mandatory security training uh, and thinking like, oh, it's not important for me, then that's going to reflect on the rest of the organization, right? But if they're in that room, if they're in the front of the room, if they're teaching that room, right, it's going to also reflect positive, more positively, like, look, this is a very important thing. And we're going to, I'm going to test you afterwards. And I want you to report things to me or whatever the case is, right? It's just be that, um, that, that kind of champion for security. Then that goes a lot more f- further than just hiring enough people to do it. Um, and, and I think that's kind of the, the struggle that, that I see. Jack, following up on this, I think most people, or, or at least most people who are regularly working with computers, uh, and, and as Jonathan mentioned, we, we are seeing increasing knowledge regarding security issues. So, so I think that there, there are certain things that I, I think by now have become ingrained, right? We we understand the need to have passwords and the need for them to be uh, something other than one, two, three, four. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm wondering if you could perhaps um, share with us, you know, provide, provide us with a couple of examples of of less obvious risks, things that might not fit the the typical idea that people have about cybersecurity risks, right? Because we we all have uh, or or most of us have have this uh, intuitive sense that that well if you're picking up a, a, a USB that 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 someone gave to you right and then you you don't know who that person is right they're you're you're, you're physically connecting your computer to to a device and there could be uh, a virus in that in that USB but but are there some some um, some other concerns out there that might not be uh, as as evident um, perhaps something you know I'm, I'm looking perhaps for something here that will get people thinking and, and maybe broadening their horizons as to as to what these risks are. So I think the thing that people are getting hit with a lot still is phishing 
emails and you would think like oh yeah i've seen those the prince of uh, nigeria keeps emailing me saying i've got an inheritance but these are actually becoming a lot more sophisticated you know if somebody goes to your linkedin they can see what um where you work what's um and from there you could probably guess someone's email right it's typically first name dot last name at you know business dot com um and you know and from there they can look to see what's your uh, skills there right so maybe you're an sap backend developer or you're in hr or you're in marketing right and so from there they might see um what apps you're good at or something like that and so from there they can craft a very targeted email and just say listen i'm from uh, I'm from the IT department. We want to give you a refresh on your on your laptop. Um, we just need to do a quick diagnostic diagnostics on your computer. Please uh, open the attachment and run this so that I can make sure I understand the specs and we can get you a new one, right? And and something just very close to home because it looks like it's from the IT department. Maybe there's just one letter off in your domain name in the domain name of email. It looks internal, whatever the case may be. And people will run this software on their computer, and that's malware. And from there, somebody can take control of the computer and then get to where they need to go in the network. I mean, it's really scary how um, how sophisticated a really good phishing email is. And if those aren't working, people can call you on the phone. And we're we're kind of savvy enough to know not to click certain things on a on an email. But when somebody just sounds like they need a lot of help, and they're like, "Look, I'm an intern." I just started here a week ago. I don't know this person's phone number. Can you please help me out? Or their, or what's the uh, password to this thing? Whatever, and it just keeps going until you feel like, you know, you start with it with like I'm not sure, and then you just you kind of make a, a connection with them, and you're like, okay, I think I can trust them to give them this information, whatever, right? So some people are really good at social engineering you over the phone and and sending good emails. And I think these two are still extremely effective. And when you see a lot of the uh, the major breaches out there. Uh, like how did they get into a nuclear power plant or the Olympics or whatever the case may be. It's typically because of a phishing email that started it all. And uh, those are still just really, really hard to uh, identify. I mean, even people in the security industry can sometimes get phished and it's, uh, it's crazy. That reminds me of a post I saw on LinkedIn not too long ago from an information security expert, and they, they said, can you tell the difference between the names of these two banks? And the only difference, was, you know, letters were the same and the URL was the same, except that one of the A's that was swapped out was Russian Cyrillic A and not the English A, right? So so I, it was read differently, I guess, when, uh, you know, when the, I don't even know the language for this, Jack, you'll have to fill in. But the way the computer reads the IP, you know, reads the domain name and, and maps it to the IP address yeah. was, you know, was different, right? It fooled, it fooled the eyes, and but on the back end, the IP was different. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's very tricky sometimes. So, Jack, let, let's talk about hackers. Um, the, these have become mythical creatures of, of our time. You, you've met many of them. So tell us about the interactions you, you, you've had with them. And what drives these these folks? And just for, just for people who might not know, what's what's the difference between a, a black hat hacker and a white hat hacker? Well, white hat has the permission, and anything outside of white hat, they don't have permission, and so it becomes gray hat or black hat, um, depending on how bad they're doing things, I guess. So black hat would be like a cyber criminal just doing stuff without permission. Um, I mean, I think. The, the one common thread I see in a lot of these is, you know, they they grow up with with a computer in the room, um, they get into video games, and then they, um, and we're talking cyber criminals here, right? So, and then they, um, 
they they get bored with the game and they try to figure out ways to cheat in the game. And so once once they start getting on that path, now they're trying to figure out how to make the computer or the video game do things it's not supposed to. And so you're they're installing malware on their own computer to like you know interact with the game in a way that they want to. Or or and then maybe that results in them in their computer getting hacked and someone else can get in because when you're getting this kind of, when you're getting some of these cheats, it's not you know the nicest software you're getting in there so now you've got to figure out how to way to undo this and and get back and try to figure out and, and it becomes kind of like this this game that you're playing of, of just the software game and so I, th- I see a lot of common threads where people get started in that kind of scene but uh, uh you know i think uh, there's a few reasons why people do things there's there's hacktivism, right? So there's just some sort of social injustice in the world and they want to do something about it. And they're just frustrated with their own situation. Um, oftentimes people will hack their own school in a high school or a college or something. And it's kind of like a feather in their cap. Like, look at me, there's people are trying to teach me, but I'm able to totally control the whole school's network. Um, you know, so there's just that kind of, uh, you know, doing acting out kind of thing as well. But then uh, there's a lot of money. I mean, um, you talk about some of the biggest uh, crypto heists or just, um, you know, cyber heists ever. I mean, billions of dollars have been stolen. And so you could really be very profitable robbing bank um, all online. And that's uh, just a wild concept, right? So there's a lot of money to be involved as well as ransomware can be, you know, you can make a lot of money from ransomware. So th- that's uh, another reason. And, and, and another reason after that would be, to collect intelligence, I, I said this a few times. You know, you have nation states attacking each other, or sometimes attacking um, businesses, and so they're collecting intelligence, they're collecting uh, intellectual property, they're just collecting data um, that they can use for something else. And that's uh, another really big reason why you'll see hackers out there is because they are just collecting data. And so I think most stuff falls into those categories on why people do what they do. So in your personal interactions with hackers, with security personnel, do you run into any common themes uh, in the way they see the world and the way they they view their, their role behind the keyboard? Hmm. I mean, there is, a, there, there is the attacking team and the defending team, right? So you've got kind of um, two sides to this. And the defending team is trying to patch all the holes and button all the doors and windows and everything so that no, nobody can get in. And I do think that... Um, one of my favorite definitions of security is is just an infosec, being able to conduct business in a chaotic environment and an, an uncontrolled environment. And sure enough, the internet is very chaotic and uncontrolled, and you need to be able to do business in this. There was a time where we would not put our credit cards into a form and be, and we actually laughed at this. Like, look at this. They want me to put my credit card on this website. There's no way I'd ever do that. And look, now we have, like, everything is tied digitally and it's easy to make purchases but um you know that's that's what we have to do is we have to do business in this environment and security allows us to do that it's kind of like the the brake pedal of the car it's not really there to stop us it's there to allow us to go faster we really want to go faster we we don't buy cars so we can stop better we buy cars you know fast cars so we can go faster and that's that's what the brake pedal's for is to allow us to go faster and that's what security should be looked at and so the the blue team, the defending team, um, loves this kind of let's see how let's see how much risk we can have, but at the same time keep it up at the same time. You know, like it's it's a it's a difficult balance because we don't want to expose too much, but we do want to allow business to continue. And some people are like, no, take everything down, and and that's just not acceptable. We we need to 
we need to do business. And so, um, yeah, I mean, that's kind of like what one side is doing. They're, they're defending. And then the other side is the red team, which is looking for the vulnerabilities to try to find um, things either legally or illegally, right? So there's uh, security assessments you can get where you have a hacker come in and, and test the network to see what's, what am I, what's just hanging out there? Is my zipper down? Tell me. And, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of a nice uh, way of, of finding out versus having someone come in and steal everything. So, uh, yeah, you can hire someone to do that. And they, these people, I think, have kind of a common thread of always being cu uh, curious and pushing the limits on what technology can do and finding, um, finding ways to do things like it shouldn't. Like, for instance, um, you might have gotten like an ant farm when you were a kid. And you get like this this ant farm, but you, you, there's no ants. You have to ship the ants to you. You have to order, you know, have to send a little note and say, please send me a box of ants or a package of ants. And when you get those ants, um, a hacker might think, wow, this is a way to send ants to anyone. Like I could just send ants to anyone in the world. This is the weirdest thing. And so they have this kind of way of just not thinking the way that things are supposed to be done, but thinking like, how can we do this in a totally different way? And let's see if we can and, and trying it. And they're just constantly trying to do things that aren't supposed to be done just to see if it's possible. And a lot of times it's not possible, but then other times like, whoops, somebody didn't close this window and we can get in this way. Um, and I do think common, kind of common with everyone across the board in security is endless curiosity. You can't just follow the, the rule book or the playbook and think you're done. You have to say, Wait a minute. What if I look at these? What if I, you know, look at these indicators here and and that over there, and just keep being curious on what could possibly do what you need to do? Um, you just kind of have to have an endless endless <laughs> curiosity for it all in order to be really good at what you're doing in security. That's really interesting. I, you know, I, w I would love to tra chase that thread a little more, but I, I want to turn to the topic of law for a minute because Fred and I are both international business lawyers and we think about the law as being somewhat helpful. And I tell my business clients that if you're doing business the right way, you don't need your contract at all, right? The law, the law is irrelevant until you actually need the law. How do you feel like um, international and national laws are doing at addressing hacking issues? How, how do nations do in cooperating on uh, on dealing with this, which is obviously a, uh, it's the essence of, of cross-border issues, right? Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, this is something that isn't, um, a lot, kind of a long-standing law. We're just kind of like learning how to handle it as we're going and making like new rules as we're going, because all this technology is kind of new to us in the last couple decades. So it's difficult to, a lot of judges that see cases, um, where a student hacked their school or their police department or something like that, this is the first time they've ever seen a cybercrime case before, right? There's just, it's, it's crazy um, just that they never had that experience before. And so it's becoming more, uh, more popular, but at the same time, you have police who just don't know how to re respond to some of these things. Um, I think one of, the, one of the problems is the, the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act is what a lot of these um, people get charged with a violation of this, which was enacted in 1986. Like, think about how different technology was in 1986 when a law came that says you're prohibited to use an, a computer in an unauthorized fashion, right? You, you have to have authorization to use this computer. Like, how many times have you used a computer without authorization? You've broken the law. Um, it, it's, 
it's it, it's a weird and obscure law. And one of the big um, one of the big problems that's happened as a result of this is um, while well, a lot of people are, are have gone to prison for a long time because of this law, and um, and then there's some gray areas where people have gone to prison for this law that don't necessarily have broken this law. Like for instance, there's a story of Aaron Schwartz who was downloading um, scholarly research articles from JSTOR, which is um, kind of a document repository that colleges have access to, but you really can't get it unless you have you know, a subscription through the college. And so what he was doing was kind of taking these things behind uh, sort of a, not, a, a sort of a paywall and then exposing them to the internet because they're, they're really research articles. And so he's like, I think the world should have this, right? And so he was taking it and putting it out there publicly for everyone. Um, well, he was arrested and charged with violation of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, but really all he was in violation for were the terms of service in, you know, that JSTOR had. Right. So it was really JSTOR that I mean, he had he had authorization to, to get in there and see those documents because he was I think he was working at MIT or, you know, student at MIT at the time. And so he, he was fine there. It wasn't like he didn't have authorization, um, but it wasn't allowed in the terms of service to post that online. And so that's where he really broke the terms of service. And if you're breaking terms of service and that's the law you broke, that's not quite the law. And there are so many times where people violate the terms of service in the computer world, and that's considered breaking the law. And there should, um, th there's, I, I tried to be an amendment passed many times to just say any time that there's a violation of terms of service, that should not be considered a violation of the law. That should just be a, a, a disagreement between that business and that that person who did it, um, and you know, and, and handled in that way but not like in a federal uh, court kind of way. I'm not sure the difference and how that is, but I, I'm, I'm pretty sure you would, you would understand why there's a difference there. And I think um, lawmakers have tried to widen the scope of what the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act um, can, can do, which they think can combat cybercrime more. Like we need to make it even more broad so that people aren't, you know, doing other things, but this is dangerous because then it just makes everyone pretty much uh, violate this. And then the police can just use that whenever they feel like they need to. Uh, and it's not so clear anymore, right? So I think the scope needs to be narrowed on that particular law or revised in a way that, um, you know, is more uh, impactful for cyber criminals and not so wide that everyone would just fall into it if you just surf the internet for five minutes. So Jack, in addition to being a podcast host, you are also uh, an avid consumer of podcasts. We we heard uh, about that earlier, and by the way, I, I I feel the same way that you do. I can't I can't count the times when I've taken the the, the, the long route to a particular place or, or stayed in the car or or what have you, just so I could finish listening to 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 a podcast. So um, perhaps. Um, you could you could share with us what what some of your um, inspiration inspirations have 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 been. Uh, obviously, they don't have to to be uh, cybersecurity related. Maybe just some some great podcasts that you could you could flag for us, and um, and, and yeah, maybe some 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 pro tips to 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 us here at a Global Law and Business. Sure, I have probably over 200 podcasts I'm subscribed to. So 
I don't know where to stop stop with this one, but you know, I think the classics for me have always been This American Life, uh, Radio Lab, Ninety Nine Percent Invisible, Reply All. These kind of things um, really are just great storytelling, and you, that's what kind of drew me in is is being on the edge of your seat in a story is is just really exciting, especially when it's a true story. I really like true stories. Um, but I also like a good conversation when it comes to introducing me to knowledge or opinions or thoughts that I, I wasn't previously aware of. And so um, it's, and especially in 2020, where I felt like uh, it's a time for a kind of rebirth and revisit like all, all the fundamentals of what it is I believe in in the world and all these kind of things. So um, with that, I like listening to um, the Lex Friedman podcast, Tim Ferriss, um, the uh, Huberman Lab, um, Jocko podcast, and um, Sam Harris. I think these people are are challenging my m- some of my thoughts and ideas and getting me to think in ways that I never thought before, and uh, that's really interesting. And then there's um there's some there's some series podcasts that are pretty fun, like Exit Scam talks about. Um, what happened to a crypto exchange where the owner disappeared and um, took all the money. And so they, it's what happened there is pretty wild. And that one's called Exit Scam. And uh, The Missing Crypto Queen is interesting where another um, scam took place, it seems like. And uh, yeah, I could go on and on, but I think I'm just going to stop there. Well, Jonathan, I think I think we can... We can take uh, this answer uh, as at least partially Jack's uh, recommendations. He certainly gave us uh, a lot to uh, to to, to uh, sift through there. Although, unless that is Jack, you have um, any other recommendations, perhaps outside the podcast medium that you'd like to share with us? Of like books and and songs and stuff. <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh, those are those are definitely both. Uh, good categories. Yeah, I think um I think there's some really good uh cyber cybercrime books that are really fascinating such as Sandworm, Countdown to Zero Day, um This is how they tell me the world ends. Those are three that just come to mind which talk about some of the some of the bigger um events that have happened in um in cybersecurity um such as um hacking the Iranian nuclear enrichment plant and degrading their systems and hacking the Ukrainian uh, power grid and it's just everything there. So it's, it's they're wild stories that uh, are fascinating to get into. And following, um, following this, uh, this topic a little bit, if somebody wants, I mean, I mean, could you provide a, a recommendation or two for someone who wants to listen to your, to your podcast and, and they, 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 they're spoiled for choice. If you if you had to give them one or two uh, episodes for for them to get started and hopefully get hooked, what would they be? And I do know that this is a, a tough question, right? Based based on my own experience, right? Because I, I I've enjoyed recording uh, all of our all of our episodes, right? So I know it's it's hard, but I'm, I'll still ask you to try. Yeah, um, some audience favorites are. Um one that's called Black Duck Eggs, and that is where a, um, a security team got together and they, they built a really amazing crack team of 
uh, hackers basically, and then they were paid by a Fortune 5 company to come hack the place. And uh, how they did it was was really interesting, and what they discover is really fascinating. Um, I think another one that is an audience favorite is called Project Raven, which is a uh, the UAE um, hired some ex NSA people to come over and do some hacking for the UAE government, and it all went bad. And the uh, ex NSA person came on the show and explained uh, what happened over there, and it's just really fascinating to hear how how things unraveled and what they do over there and yeah it's it's wild to see this stuff all right i'll, I'll definitely have a listen myself uh jonathan do you have any recommendations for us i do but it's a it's an unusual recommendation so a few weeks ago i attended the silicon slopes conference here in salt lake and there was a company, a Utah company called Spark XR, and they built a what they call a sensory pod. It's really a, a game, right? It's an immersive game, but you're standing in a pod on a rumble strip. You've got uh, goggles on. You're you're holding sensors in your hands, and um, the this wasn't just any game, right? They they had partnered with a Saudi Arabian company to uh, kind of make this immersive tour of a UNESCO World Heritage Site called Alula in Saudi Arabia. And it's not just a regular tour. Picture like your Indiana Jones, who also has access to a hovercraft, uh, and, you're, and you're going through. And while you're going through, you're, you're pointing at different objects, right? Your goal is to pick up as many historical artifacts as you can before the sandstorm rolls in and buries everything in sand. And so I had the experience, uh, the opportunity to, to try this. I'd never, I'd, I'd done a little bit of VR gaming, but not a ton. So this was great because I was able to stand on, on the rumble pad. You know, it was, it was 360. They had fans around. So it was really simulated. I mean, I, it was so realistic that I even screamed at one point because I thought I was going to run into a rock wall as my speeder was going, <laughs> it was going really fast. Right. So it was, it was fun. Um, it's just really cool. So I, I'll try and find the link to the company because they're going to be, I think they're still in fundraising rounds. Um, they're going to be building these pods and trying to get them placed in uh, movie theaters. And I liked it because it it's kind of the reason why I like historical fiction, right? Which is you like that like Jack says you get the reality into the story, and so I like um, I like that because it, you know I wouldn't think about oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna play a game that's going to teach me something, but I like those kinds of games too. It's the same kind of reason why I tell my wife that I like Assassin's Creed because I feel like I'm almost learning something while I'm playing it. Right. So Fred, what do you have for us? So earlier this week, I was attending a psychedelics conference in in Miami, and in the lead up to that, I I, I, I wanted to to inform myself as, as much as possible of the latest trends in the in the industry, and so spent a, the a good part of the weekend looking at at information online, especially on YouTube, and there's actually quite a bit of stuff that's really interesting, but. Um, out of all the things I saw, um, I just wanted to highlight one of the videos. Um, and, and, and for someone who really has no, no, no knowledge of what's happening in psychedelics and wants to, uh, or has some very basic knowledge and is looking to learn more, I think this was actually a, a very, very useful uh, clip and, and very easy to digest. Um, and it's called, it, it's titled, MDMA could help cure PTSD. This is a, a Vice News um, video. Um, you can find it on, on YouTube. And having later when I attended the conference, I, I 
was able to to see some some parallels between the experiences described in this video and and, and what some of the panelists at the conference shared um, at the um, at the at the conference there were there were a lot of uh, athletes who who were sharing their experiences and how psychedelics helped them overcome some of the some of the trauma that they that they built up over the years um, and in in the case of this video the the main protagonist is a is, is a journalist so it's someone who who uh, experiences PTSD from being in a war zone or being in war zones as a, as a journalist not as a not as a soldier so that was that was added a uh, another dimension to it and just overall helps highlight uh, what, what the potential that um, psychedelics hold for different segments of the population that uh, are looking for for new possibilities in terms of treating their um, their conditions so um, we'll, uh, we'll we'll provide a link in our in our blogs when we when we publish the the episode so on that note jack thank you thank you so much for for joining us thanks for for the recommendations definitely have um you know my my work cut out for me uh next time i i, I go into into podcast listening mode so uh great keep up the keep up the awesome work and uh look forward to to your your stories in the future and new uh cool revelations that we'll, we'll get from you thanks uh, i had a fun time being here thanks a lot We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. We look forward to connecting with you on social media to continue discussing developments in global law and business. This podcast was produced by Harris Bricken, music composed by Stephen Schmidt. Tune in next week for another episode. We'll see you then.